For our scripture reading, I'm going to be reading from Colossians uh, chapter 3. And uh, though I have down here uh, verses 12 through 13, I'm going to read uh, all the way down to 17 after I have the pastoral prayer. So there we go. Let's pray. Our Father, we do get lost in thinking of your divine love, how wondrous it is, how wondrous it has been in the past, how wondrous it is now, how wondrous it will ever be throughout eternity. We thank you that as we go through the different seasons, as we come to uh, from one year to the next, that you are the ancient of days, that you who have been our help in ages past are always our help, that you never change. The promises you have made from eternity will go on through eternity. You will never change your mind. You yourself will never change. And we can rest in that. We do not know what this year will bring us. We don't know all the good things. We don't know the the trials that will come our way. But we know you. And we know that you will give to us what we can endure and what we can handle. You will cause all things to work for our good and for your purposes, which are always good. And we can trust that. And so, our Father, as we begin this year, may we be those who have faith, who remain faithful unto you, who live our lives out as little children, trusting our Heavenly Father, resting in the work of our brother Jesus Christ, knowing that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and will complete that work that he has begun in us, We thank you that we are those who face the future with hope, not without it. We do confess before you that oftentimes we do act as though we are as the world without hope, thinking that there is nothing more, thinking that what takes place is random. We depend too much upon ourselves, our own resources, our own wisdom, not trust in you. And oftentimes then we resort to further sin of lying, of deceiving, uh, of greed, of stealing, of all the breaking all of the commandments. We confess these things before you. And all the more we give you thanks for that final work, that one work of Jesus Christ upon the cross to remove our sins, the guilt of our sins. And that we may go forth not worrying about whether you're going to keep us in your family or not. We trust you. Rest in you. We pray, our Father, for this world that is so troubled. There is much chaos. There is much violence, much iniquity. There is much darkness. 
And we pray for the light of your gospel to shine forward. There will be many who are lost at this moment, but this year will not end without their coming into your kingdom and receiving the hope that is of Jesus Christ. We pray for your church worldwide to be faithful to you. That each church be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. That all of your children to be faithful in proclaiming uh, Jesus Christ to their neighbors. We particularly pray for our brothers and sisters and for our sister churches in areas of this world uh, in which their very lives are threatened. We pray for their protection. We pray for all the more the effectiveness of their witness uh, in their troubled areas. And we pray that you would sustain them in their persecution that they endure. We pray, our Father, for uh, our military. We pray for those who are placed in dangerous positions. Pray for your protection of them. We pray for the chaplains in the military. Pray again that they may boldly declare your gospel and to give the word of hope to to those whose lives are in danger and who fear for their safety. We pray, our Father, for ourselves here in this church, this congregation. You know that what our needs are. You know what we are going to face uh, in this coming year. And we pray for your provisions, for you to grant us strength where we need that strength. Keep our eyes focused upon you. Whether we go through physical ailments, whether we have worries in our families and other relationships or in our jobs, whatever they may be, keep our eyes upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not let us waver. Keep our trust in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to read the scripture. And it's going to be Colossians chapter 3. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 12 through verse 17. Because this Sunday, then the next four Sundays, we'll be covering this passage. So hear the word of God. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Our Father, as we open your word before us, as we consider your words, we we pray for understanding to be led by your Holy Spirit. And we pray for the Holy Spirit as well to open our eyes to our own hearts that we might be examined by your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
There are many things that I like about my wife. One of the things in particular I like about her is that she simplifies my life. Every morning when I go to my closet, I will find the set of clothes that I will be wearing. I mean, men, this is great. I will wear clothes that will match and that will be appropriate for whatever the occasion is. And all I've got to do is put the clothes on. Now, we're beginning a five-part series in this passage that I just read, which is about wearing the right clothes. So let me just reread again verses 12 and 13. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And the context of this passage, just before this, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, uh, he, he's written about putting, first of all, away behavior and traits that have been part of what is called the old self or the old man, the old flesh, what we were like before we had Jesus Christ. And he wants them to go to their closets and he wants them to pull out all those old clothes and he wants them to toss them in the trash. Now, these are clothing articles like, and he lists them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. So they're to put off those old, that old wardrobe and then to put on the new self, the new man, put on that wardrobe. Now that they are in Christ, they have a new image to portray, and that is the image of their creator. And so they need to wear clothes that not only match, but that are appropriate to their new status. So who are they? Well, Paul describes them here in verse 12. He says to them that you are chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, this is covenant language that he's using as a good, actually as a good Jew. As the nation Israel was chosen to be the covenant nation of God, so now anyone who is in Christ, who is in the church now, no matter what their race or their ethnic heritage or their social status, they belong to the covenant people of God. And so now as God's chosen covenant people, they are two things. They are holy and beloved. And the point here is not that these believers of, uh, of Colossae have achieved you know, some great height and measure of holiness or are, are themselves just lovable people. But now that they are in Christ, well, they have become their God's chosen covenant people and they are set apart. That's what being holy means. They are set apart for holy purposes. They have received the same status of Christ, and they are now to be regarded as the beloved children of God, just as what Christ was. They have been adopted as God's beloved. 
So now that they have received this kind of status, so again, they are to put on clothing that reflects that status. So what is that clothing? Well, for one thing, we'll start going through this list here. They are to put on compassionate hearts. They are to actually feel compassion. They're to feel mercy and pity for others. So when they help others, they do not do it out of guilt. They do not do it out of obedience in the same way that you might tell one of your young children, you be nice to your brother or sister and go help them. And so they begrudgingly help. They really want to help. They really care for others. That's what it means to have compassionate hearts. And the second thing that they are to put on is kindness. Now, like hearts of compassion here, what Paul is making the point here, he wants them to have this disposition of being kind. The kind person is a warm person. He or she is a generous person. He or she sincerely wants good for others, sincerely wants to help others. You don't have to beg them to do that. So they're to have compassionate hearts. They are to to wear kindness. The third thing is humility. And this is the same term that Paul had used back in Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 3. We looked at that when we were going through the Advent series and talked about Christ being humble. He writes in verse 3 of Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. And so it is an attitude from which we are able, because we have that humility, we're able to put the needs of others before ourselves sincerely. So compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. And then he has the term meekness. Now, this term can be a little difficult to get a handle on. Uh, Another way to translate it is gentleness, kind of depending what version you have. It may have meekness or gentleness. I think one of the ways to describe what what Paul is getting at here is, have you ever been in the presence of, say, a celebrity or maybe some dignitary or just anyone who's in a position that you highly respect that position, okay? And you meet that individual, and lo and behold, that person treats you with respect, with dignity, shows a sincere interest in you, so that you, I mean, you go away feeling, well, you would have thought that I was somebody important. You know, I, I, I can still remember that, this highly respectable preacher and um, we're, we're in someone's home. I'm sitting on a, on a chair with my little plate of food and eating. And he comes over and he gets on one knee to talk to me. And, I, you know, I just immediately had to stand up and say, no, 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 you don't do that. That's a, a person who bears this disposition of meekness. That's what's trying to be uh, gotten at here. So a person is to possess meekness, kindness, humility, compassionate hearts. And then he gets to this word, patience. 
If you've got your King James Bible, maybe another version, it might say long-suffering. What's involved what, in this is that someone with patience has to put up with something. So the verse goes on. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. That's what patience involves. Patience presupposes some form of suffering. I mean, it might be very painful suffering or just merely being inconvenienced. But you have to bear up with something, whatever the degree is. There's something unpleasant taking place. And in this case, the circumstance has to do with the relating of others in the church who are interesting people in the church. And you, you, you put, you, and you're not just putting up with it, but you're having this disposition of kindness and patience that actually still cares for that person. So he's saying, be patient. Be patient with everyone. Bear their faults and their frailties. And even when someone has outright offended you, so that you have a very legitimate complaint, be forgiving. And you have to do this. We have to do it for a very simple, poignant reason that is given here. The Lord has forgiven you. As far as Paul is concerned, enough said. We are to forgive. So let's go over these articles of clothing. Just repeat them one more time. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. These are the traits that form the church dress code. And so what we're going to do now is consider the implications of of such dress regulations. And the first implication is this. It is... Who we are, that is, it is what we wear that distinguishes the church of Jesus Christ. I titled this sermon, Church Dress Code, as opposed to, you know, saying, well, Christian dress code to signify the context of this passage, what it's actually about. It's about how Christians within a church body are to relate to one another. Now, as Christians, we should show these traits outside of the church. I mean, Jesus taught we're to love our neighbors, and he taught that everyone is our neighbor. But Jesus also taught his disciples this. He says, here is how people are going to identify that you are my disciples, that you belong to me by your love for one another. That's in John 13:35. The tendency of many of us, you know, in whatever churches, and particularly here in America, is that we tend to treat the church like a service provider, kind of like the YMCA. You know, you, you sign up because you want to go to the exercise programs or you want to do the swimming or uh, maybe there's some other thing in there that you like and you pick and choose what it is that you want from the Y. We'll, we'll do that time, in, in a sense, with church. We'll come to, we'll come to worship. You know, it, it helps us to worship, helps us to relate to God. We, we might choose, um, well, you know, some Sunday school, a Sunday school class to go to. And, you know, maybe, maybe we'll do a small group. And, you know, 
we'll just kind of pick and choose and see what we individually will benefit from according to our needs and our interests. We have to understand that there are two primary images in the New Testament for the church. And they are these. Family and body. In Christ, we are adopted into God's family. God is our father. Christ is our brother. And as believers, we are to understand and refer to one another as brothers and sisters. Now, in Paul's writings, his favorite image is that of the body. I'm going to read a couple of passages to you. They're kind of a little lengthy, but, but I want you to understand the point, the significance of this term body for the Apostle Paul, for the New Testament. First of all, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He writes this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Doesn't matter who we were, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we are all members of this one body. And then he goes on in the same chapter. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, and he says it specifically, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So you get that, that point there. Yes, we're all individuals, but we are united together. And then let me read from Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then hear these. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this teaching about being the body of Christ, understand this, it's not mere imagery. It's not just, you know, this is an interesting way to to talk about the church. What Paul is saying here is that there is a true union in the body of Jesus Christ. There's some mystery taking place here. But we don't choose to join the church of Jesus Christ. 
The mere fact that we have been born again in Christ unites us to him and makes us members of his church, just as the birth of a child makes him or her member of his biological family. There's no choosing to do. There's no choosing of, of, well, I I want to be united with Christians or not. You are. The only choosing that we do is in a practical way, and we choose the local church, a local body, that we will express this union with. Again, understand this, because, again, I'm probably kind of repeating myself, um, but but it is something we kind of keep missing out on. We'll read the Bible, we'll, particularly we'll read these, these epistles of Paul. And we, we'll read it as though he's writing to, well, to me as an individual. And this is something I've got to work on and I've got to do this. When Paul's writing you, he's writing in the plural. And he's writing to a church, not to just individuals, unless it's in those epistles that he's, he's saying, particularly I'm writing to you, Timothy. His presupposition, presupposition of all of Scripture, is that any follower of Christ will be united in a church body. There is no selecting, not in that day and age, there's no such thing as selecting, well, whether I'll be part of a church or not. But Everyone is understood to be fully connected, to be fully active member of a body of believers which is itself the body of Christ. So that's why, you know, thinking back about to that Ephesians passage, when Paul talks about us maturing and growing in the faith, he doesn't talk about, you know, this individual and that individual and so on, you know, do your Bible reading and read good books and pray a lot and and you grow in your faith. He means we do it together. We build each other up in the faith. That's how we as individual members become mature. Let me just read again that that closing part in the Ephesians passage. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, who is the head of the body, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. we got to do it together. We have no option. So together, working together, everyone doing their part, that's what's going to cause us to grow into Jesus Christ. Now here's the question for us. Here's the difficult part. How do we actually work together? You know, particularly given, I mean, not everybody's easy to work with. Well, we do it by possessing the attitudes of compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and uh, forbearing with one another, and forgiving each other. That's how we do it. Take away these attitudes, and it all falls apart. No matter how well equipped, the members of any church are. No matter how wonderful the church's vision statement or five-year plan, no matter how well organized the church structure is, you've got to have these attitudes. 
or it falls apart. It, the parts will not work together. Now, understand there is value in setting goals. There is value in clarifying a church's mission in its particular location. But having said that, it is not vision, but obedience. Obedience to the revelation already given in Scripture about what a church is to be like, that is what determines the health of a church. Time and again, if you're reading through the New Testament, the teaching is about the importance of having what Paul in, in Galatia calls the fruit of the Spirit. Okay. So, for example, when Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he expresses his desire, he says, look, I, I want to see the people, I want to see you laboring side by side for the gospel. You know, I want you to get that gospel out there. You, you, and you fight off all the attacks against you. And after he says that, that's when he goes into the part about humility and about how necessary it is to show love and sympathy toward one another. You can't work side by side. You can't do that fighting for the kingdom of God if you don't have such attitudes. And so the bottom line is this. What we have to ask is what distinguishes the church of Jesus Christ? Is it organization? Is it great activities, wonderful services that we offer to people who come here? Well, we already noted Jesus' answer to this. He gave it. It is by our love for one another. And what he is saying is this, is that the world has the right to look at us and judge whether or not our claim to belong to Christ is real by how well we treat one another. Does being united to Christ actually make a difference? Now, I don't know about you. Whenever I read these things in the scripture, and especially when I have to, to preach on them, I always, you know, this is so hard. It is so difficult to do. How does any church attain to such a high standard? Because you think about it. The very nature of the gospel assures that every church will possess the same fundamental flaw that's going to make this so difficult. It is going to be made up of sinners. For the gospel does not call sinners to change into perfect persons before being united to the body of Christ. Nor does the gospel sanctify all believers automatically and perfectly so that they just quickly and easily shed off all their old habits and their sins and all the impact that their sins have had on them and everything is now okay. The gospel sets them on the right path, but we have a long way to go before we master holiness and love. Meanwhile, what can we do to improve the way that we relate to one another in the church, that we can actually start wearing these clothes and exhibiting them? Well, I think we can work at three things. We can work at understanding, first, the frailties, the very real frailties of others. Secondly, the very real frailties of ourselves. Thirdly, 
How God the Father in Christ display these same fruit, these same dispositions and attitudes toward us. Because our misstep comes when we overrate ourselves and overrate others and we underrate God the Father in Christ. Let me give a thought here. Have you ever heard a remark like this? You know, maybe you're talking with someone and talking about another member of the church because you certainly would never have said anything like this, but you think about so-and-so, well, if so-and-so was a Christian, he or she would not, and you name the sin. You know, a Christian, a Christian, a real Christian would not gossip. A real Christian would not lose his temper like he or lost against me. But really, you know the answer to that. I've been a pastor for 33 years, and I can tell you, it is hard for anyone to come to me now and confess a sin that I have not heard before. Indeed, probably one of the most common remarks made to me, a church member, you know, can I meet with you? And he or she'll come to me and say, you know, I got to tell you, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And then he or she will name a sin that they thought they could never commit. Or they keep committing the same sin. And, they, you know, a real Christian wouldn't keep committing the same sin, would they? Now, I, 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 take, I take these things seriously. But what we've got to remember, and I will tell them, we've got to remember our theology. Christ died for us. Why? Because we are sinners. And we are counted righteous before God. But we're counted righteous because of Christ's righteousness being credited to us. Not because the Holy Spirit has come in and already completed his work of sanctifying us. I don't know about you, but I can attest that I am still beset by sin. We are capable of anything, and we are especially capable when we think that we have reached this state of which, well, I could never do that. Or I've got that behind me. I will never do it again That's when we're in our most dangerous state. And that's why we have to always be examining ourselves in the light of Scripture. That's why when I'm, you know, so often and I'm about to pray when we open the the word and I'll say, you know, Lord, you know, by your Holy Spirit, give us understanding to understand your word. And then I'll usually say something like, "And, and let us examine our hearts by the light of the Scripture. That's the hardest thing to do. So if we, when we come to a passage like this and we go, check, check, yeah, I got that one taken care of, well, then we need to go back over it again and examine ourselves again. And so if we understand that our brothers and our sisters struggle with the same sins and with the same frailties as ourselves, if we understand that our brothers and sisters have the same fears as we do, and if we will admit to ourselves that we really do have our own share of faults, then it is possible that we will develop sympathy and be compassionate and be kind and be humble. If we know how much we need and and crave kindness, then possibly we will show, we will have that desire to show kindness to others. And it is all the more possible if we fully understand what God the Father and the Son have shown us 
They are without sin. It's God's law that we have broken. It is Christ whom we crucified. But God sent his son, and the son gave his life because they had compassion on us. And they still have that compassion because they were and they still are kind to us. And though they are infinitely greater and more worthy than we, they treat us with meekness. And they still treat us with patience. Their forgiveness covers multitudes of sin. If they did not possess such attitudes toward us, we would be lost. And it always goes back to this. Whenever we are confronted with God's commands, and you feel the weight, the weight of those commands, always remember what the gospel is about. It's about God's unconditional love for us. God's unconditional compassion for us. God's unconditional patience with us. His unconditional forgiveness of us. It is never about what we have earned from God. Never about what God owes us. Never about us, okay, I'm really going to work even harder this year than I did last year so that God will be forgiving and patient. God is the same yesterday today and forever and we can rest in that so let us then be like our heavenly father who shows mercy to us let us be like our heavenly brother who is sympathetic towards us precisely because he has borne our flesh and he knows the frailty of our flesh let us determine that we will strive to be a church that is distinguished for the compassion the kindness the humility the meekness, the patience, and the forgiveness that we show to one another in our Lord Jesus Christ. We do give you thanks, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we have been created new in you, that we are not of the old self, but of the new self, that we now may wear and ought to wear the clothing that befits what it is to be in the image of God, to be known as a follower of you, Grant us all the gifts and all the fruit that we need. May your spirit be ever at work in us so that by the way that we live as a body, as a church, you will be honored. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.